this purpose? And she's like, it's a toy, it's a ball, it's, you know, and blows air in my face. Um, but then I said, oh, look, we have to use this on Avery's nose. And she was horrified. She was like, what is this evil contraption, right? <laughs> um, and and a, a, a more positive example of finding out someone's, something's purpose is a can opener. So recently, Eliana wanted pineapples really bad. And we had a, we had a can of pineapples. And I brought out the can opener, and she said, Daddy, what is this for? And she was perplexed by this weird-looking contraption. And then when I began to use the can opener, her face lit up, and she's like, this thing is amazing. It's getting me the pineapples that I want, right? And suddenly it clicked the purpose of the can opener. And so often, we can be perplexed about something's purpose. We can see something and not really know what it is, some contraption, or if you're not a techie, some latest tech thing, and you're like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. But then you figure out its purpose, you're like, this thing's awesome. And so finding something's purpose can be quite astound, astounding and beautiful. And the same can be true for a community of people or for individuals. When you see a community operating the way that it should be operating, living out its God-given purpose of loving one another, it can be quite remarkable and a beautiful picture. And the same thing at an individual level. When we are living out our God-given purposes, it's quite beautiful when we do this. And so purpose has great power. And the human heart kind of fuels on purpose, right? We need purpose. And whether we realize it, we're waking up every day saying, what is my purpose? And in some ways, we're answering that question every single day. And so purpose has great power. So I wonder this morning, I wonder this morning for us, how would we answer this question? What is my purpose? What is my purpose? You might be here this morning saying, my purpose is to provide for my family so that they could have it better than I did when I was a kid, to provide for my kids so they can have it better than me. Maybe you're thinking it's wrapped up in a job or something around making uh, the world a better place and loving others and loving your friends and loving your family well. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not quite the philosophical type. I don't know how I would answer that question. Or maybe you're thinking, I know it has something to do with God and Jesus, but if I'm honest with myself, quite honestly, I'm living out every day for another purpose. I want to say I'm there with you too. Or maybe you're here and you're like, I'm struggling finding purpose this morning. I want to say that there are people that would love to pray with you and to listen to you this morning. And so purpose can have great power, as we said, and we're constantly asking this question, what is my purpose? Uh, Mark Twain has a, one of the most wonderful quotes on purpose, and I'll just read it for us. He says, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. The two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. And so purpose is that essential to our hearts. And so with that, we're going to read Exodus 19, uh, verses 1 through 6. And the context of our passage is that the Israelites, the main, the main people in this story, were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And then God miraculously busts them out of slavery, and they find themselves in the middle of the wilderness free, but they're like, what now? We're directionless. We're confused of, of what's happening. Why is this all happening? What is our purpose? And as humans, we're purpose-driven creatures, as we said, but we are finite. And we often find our purposes in all the wrong places. And I'm guilty of that as well. And so here are the Israelites wondering about their purpose. 
And that's where we pick up in the story. So this is Exodus 19, starting in verse 1. So it says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out, the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and you keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Um, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you um, that you love us. God, that you uh, see us, that you know us, and that you shower us with your grace, God. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're in this place. Pray this morning you would open our eyes and our hearts to your scripture and your words. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big question that we're going to be looking at in this passage is how does God give us purpose? How does God give us purpose? It's going to be the big question we're looking at. And the first answer we get is in verses 3 and 4. And commentators will say in verse 3, in the original Hebrew, it's poetic in nature. It's poetic in nature. And it's basically saying something really important is about to be said. So pay attention. It's kind of like a movie, you know, all of a sudden you hear these back, the background music start playing and it starts to build and your attention is drawn like, I better pay attention, something important is about to happen. And so verse 3 is doing that, it's drawing, it's drawing our attention to the fact that something important is about to happen. And then the, the important thing happens in verse 4, and this is what God says in verse 4, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and I have brought you to myself. And so the big thing that God is saying, pay attention to, he's saying, I brought you to myself. I love you, I see you, and I brought you to myself. I brought you into a covenant relationship with me. I brought you into a relationship with the God of the universe. We later see in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, which comments on this passage. It's another book in the Bible that comments on this passage. And it says, and God says, do you know why I brought you to myself? It's because I love you. And he says, and then it goes on. He says, do you know why I love you? I love you because I love you. That's it. That's what he says. And he says, Israelites, he said, I saw that you were in slavery for 400 years. I saw that you were going through pain and a mess and you were experiencing injustice. And I saw that you were experiencing all these awful things and you felt insignificant and you felt like no one loved you and you felt like you were forgotten about. You felt undignified. You were suffering. You were going through all these troubles. And I saw you, and I brought you on eagle's wings above all of that mess, and I'm bringing you to myself. I'm bringing you to a place of healing, to a place of grace, to a place of freedom, to a place where you're dignified, to a place where you are significant in my eyes, to a place where I hold you in my arms and say, you are mine and I love you. Imagine how the Israelites must have felt in that moment. Maybe you can. So quite an amazing thing that God does here. He gives the Israelites, he gives us himself. 
And so how does God give his purpose? We, f- we see in these verses that he gives us himself. He gives us himself, and we enter into this relationship with him. And he says, first and foremost, you know what your purpose is? It's to know me and enjoy me. It's to be with me in this covenantal relationship. About uh, 10 years ago, I, I uh, was working in construction management in New York City. And one of the guys on the job site was named Frankie. And Frankie was as New Jersey Italian as a got. Half my family is Long Island Italian, so I know kind of New York Italians. And Frankie was a New York Italian. You know, he had these big leather hands from working 30 years in construction. And Frankie was someone that, uh, that I struck up a friendship with. And he was wonderful. So he had all these, like, little pithy sayings that we were like, this is so wise. You know, this is so wise. And I still remember his little sayings today. Um, so one of his sayings was, uh, he's, he used to call me Bren. And not Brendan, Bren. And he used to have this thick accent, so I'm going to try to do his accent. He would say, he'd say, Bren. He goes, you know what's so hard about construction projects? It's not rocket science. Hey, it's people science, and that's far harder. And what he was saying is, like, we're not doing rocket science here. We're working with hundreds of people trying to get together and do the same thing, and that's really hard because relationships can be hard. He also talked about uh, pasta sauce, like some people talk about fine wine. And, like, he used to talk about a little punch of salt, a little oregano, it's wafting. And I I could almost taste it, you know, as he talked about it. But another little pithy saying, he said, uh, he said, do you know what's foundational to having a, su- a successful project? A good foundation. He would say, a good foundation is foundational. And what he meant by this is, is, I'm sure many of you know, is that the very first thing you build in a building is a foundation. Underground, it's a concrete slab, and then everything else is built on top of that. And Frankie was saying, that thing, that foundation must be right and true. Because if it's not, and you go to build on top of it, The rest of the building is going to be all out of whack. And so he's saying to have a good foundation is foundational. And so here in this passage, there's a picture of foundation just in case, just in case. (laughs) So so, uh, what God is saying is what what is your purpose? Well, first know foundationally it's to know me, to love me, and to be in this relationship with me. And the Israelites here were reminded of this. And their identities in the midst of entering into this relationship were transformed. They went from the lowest of the low in the Egyptian society. And now they were given a new identity. Beloved sons and daughters of God. In the pursuit of purpose, often we need to be reminded of our identity as beloved sons and daughters of God. Who we are. How we see ourselves affects our morals, our decisions, our self-worth, our purpose. And so every day, every hour, our hearts need to hear, you are a beloved son and daughter of God through Christ. If you were here um, for our Sunday school a couple weeks ago, uh, we talked about Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen uh, was a uh, wonderful author uh, who, who authored over 40 books. And uh, he often would talk about identity. And he would say, and he said that often we're finding our identity in three things. In what we do, in what we have, and what other people say about us. So I am what I do, for example. I am a lawyer, I'm a teacher, I'm a stay-at-home parent, I'm a paramedic. Uh, I am what I do. 
Or we say, I am what I have. I have my health. I have my family. I have a good resume. I have a bad resume. I have whatever, right? And so we identify ourselves by what we have. Then you would say, and, and maybe, at least for me, the most dangerous, I am what other people say about me. So someone says something good about you, someone gives you praise, and you're flying high, you're feeling great. But the moment that one out of 100 people say something bad about you, you're low. And your self-worth is in the garbage. And you're just feeling awful about yourself. And Henry Nouwen would say that this is dangerous. To build our identities on these things is dangerous because they're faulty foundations. They're faulty foundations. They're going to crumble, and they often crumble in our lives every day, every week, every month, every year. And foundations and buildings, as we saw in this picture, are underground. They're underground. And so God is saying, no, your identity is in me. You are a beloved son and daughter of God. That's who you are. Through Christ, that's who you are. I see you. I love you. And he says the same thing to us as he says to Jesus at Jesus' baptism. He says, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. You are my child. And so foundationally, our purpose needs to be a relationship with God. And so how does God give us purpose? Again, he gives us himself. But it just doesn't end there. You know, often in... Uh, in kind of modern American Christianity, the story kind of just ends there. It's like, it's all about a, a personal relationship with you and God. Yes, uh, it's nothing less than that, but it's much more than that. And so uh, we see, uh, what do, where do we go from here after this relationship? And so how does God give us purpose? The second answer that we get here is in verses five and six. And I'll go ahead and reread that for us. It says, now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So in verse 5, God says, if you obey me, if you walk with me, you will be my treasured possessions. And this is in the background of absolute monarchies, right? Ancient Near East. Absolute monarchies were the thing, right? So a king owned a kingdom, but he would hold things near and dear to him. And these were called treasured possessions. So God is saying, the whole world is mine, uh, but you, you are my treasured possessions. And then in verse 6, he says, you are a kingdom of priests. The idea of a priest is that they're a go-between between God and people. And he says, so you are my priests to the world. Then he goes on to say, and you are a holy nation. And the idea here is that the Israelites were set apart. They were set apart to reflect God to the world. They were to be ambassadors to the world for God. So we think about an ambassador, an ambassador to, from the United States to, to France, right? They're representing the United States. And so God is saying, you are to represent me to the watching world. You are to usher in my grace, my truth, my love. You are to usher in my character and reflect me like a mirror to the world. And so the same is true for us today. We are to be ambassadors to, God, to the world for God. And so how does God give us purpose? He gives us a mission. And the mission is to love him, to love others, and to reflect God to the world. 
Raise your hand uh, if you made a New Year's resolution this year. You can kind of think that maybe I've made a New Year's resolution. Okay, one person. <laughs> okay, I see two. <laughs> I made a New Year's resolution, and uh, usually when I do, it lasts like two weeks, and then I forget about it. I, I can't remember 10 months ago what my New Year's resolution was, right? Uh, there, was a, there was an article in the New York Times that talked about New Year's resolutions, and it basically said we need to stop making New Year's resolutions and start creating a new mission statement. And that was the, the article, uh, the title of the article. And the rationale was that, that New Year's resolutions just affect the exterior, but a mission statement affects our motivations. So the example that they give in the article is, uh, I want to lose weight. Someone might say, I want to lose weight, so I'm not going to eat ice cream or chocolate. But they say often, that really doesn't affect the motivation. So instead, we should be asking questions, what happens if I don't change? Why is losing weight important to me? The article says the resulting mission statement might be then, I want to be a role model for my children, an extraordinary parent who has the energy, health, and stamina to support them in their dreams. And so suddenly, the mission statement begins to affect the underlining motivations. A psychologist goes on in the article that says, by creating a mission statement, people can begin to identify the underlining causes of behavior, as well as what truly motivates them to make changes. A mission statement becomes the north star for people. It becomes how you make decisions, how you lead, and how you create boundaries. So a mission statement becomes the north star for people. And in this passage, God is giving his people a north star. He's saying, you are to be my ambassadors to the world. You are to usher in my grace, my truth, my love. In this age of such division, how beautiful could that be? How beautiful could that be if the church wasn't known as dividing people and an agent of division, but was the agent of reconciliation? God says, you are to be my ambassadors to the world. And interestingly enough, Again, Deuteronomy 7, later in the Bible, comments on this passage. And it says that they were the smallest, the, the Israelites were the smallest people in the land. They said they were the most insignificant people in the land. And yet God chooses them to do this significant task. And this is applicable to us today, because I think often, if you're like me, I think, I need to do something big, right? I need to do something grand. So in the age of doing something big, in order for re me to really make a difference, in order for me to really impact this world, I, you know, I need to do something big. And so maybe we think we need to be the CEO of our company or start a new nonprofit. Or maybe we need to uh, be a sought-after speaker in our field or, or revolutionize an industry, right? And all those things are great, and we need to be striving to do those things. But the problem is, often in doing those things, we forget to do the smaller things in life. We're not faithful to the seemingly insignificant things of life. And often, this is how God ushers in his kingdom. So Jesus, in telling parables about the kingdom, says the kingdom of God is like yeast and bread. You know, it's barely seen. Or it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds. And so... Here in this passage, we see God again using a seemingly small thing, the Israelites, they're the smallest people in the land, yet he's using them for such significant causes. So in the, in the age of doing something big, we need to be faithful into the seemingly small, insignificant moments of life. 
Maybe this means today, sitting down with our kids and looking them right in the eye and just saying, I love you. Or maybe it means apologizing to them for something that we've done. There is great power in a parent saying, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Maybe it means having a redemptive conversation with a friend or family member that we've maybe been on bad terms with. Maybe it means doing the dishes tonight instead of our spouse. I'm guilty of that one. I need to do that one. Maybe it means saying a nice word to a coworker tomorrow. You know, the coworker that no one really talks to or people really don't like. Maybe it means, hey, how was your weekend? And talking to them. Maybe it means thanking a spouse for the sacrifices that they've made. Maybe it's thanking a friend for the sacrifices they've made into friendship. You know, a couple months ago, I had a, uh, I had a conversation with a friend over lunch. No agenda. Let's just get together, hang out, 45 minutes, and have lunch. And that, in the middle of this lunch, he began to tell me what God was doing in his life and how God was beginning to heal all these old wounds that, that really affected many areas of his life. And as he began to talk and tell me the story, I was just, just kind of cut to the core. And I was like, that's amazing, because I could see myself in his story. And it was a hugely transformational moment for me. It was probably one of the most significant conversations that I've had in a couple of years. And to him, you know, he was, just, he was just telling me about his week, you know. And this seemingly small moment of sharing a meal with somebody became transformational. This guy might go on to preach 500 great sermons, but I bet that's going to be the most important words that I've ever heard from him, or maybe that I've ever heard from him. And so the seemingly insignificant moment of having a lunch with a friend really had kingdom impact. So in the doing something big age, we don't need to conflate living out God's mission with doing grand things. We should, we should try to do grand things, yes, but in the midst of that, let's not forget the seemingly small moments of life. We're driving on the same highway twice a day to the same job and coming back tired day in and day out. There are probably many, many moments in that day for God to be working in his kingdom. There are. And all this is rooted, all this is rooted in the idea that God has loved us, that he's brought us to himself, and that we know God's love first and foremost for us, and then we can share that love with others. And this twofold pattern, this twofold pattern of God uh, bringing us to himself and then sending out people on mission is repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. So in the very early days of Genesis with Adam and Eve, he creates them, and then he gives them a mission. He says, care for creation, care for the world, have dominion over it. He's saying, you're going to be my agents. I don't need you, but I'm choosing to use you to care for the world. And then later in Abraham, he speaks to Abraham, and he says, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. He calls Abraham to himself, and then he says, through you, you will bless the nations. You're going to be my ambassador to the world. And then again, later, we see with these Israelites, the same pattern. And this same pattern is followed all the way through to the New Testament. And one passage that actually comments on this, on our scripture here in Exodus, is 1 Peter 2, 9. Uh, 9 and 10, and I'll just go ahead and read it for us. So this is uh, a few thousand years later, and Peter picks up on our passage, and he says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. So this twofold pattern, Peter's saying, is true for us today. And it's true for us, he's getting at, in Christ. And ultimately, through Christ, God is saying, I've brought you to myself. I've made a way possible through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus. I love you so much. I see you're in pain. I see your suffering. I see your sorrow. I see your trials. I see your tribulations. And I am coming to you, and I'm bringing you to myself. I'm bearing you on eagle's wings on the shoulders of my son. He says, I love you that much. I love you that much. And I love you because I love you. And so ultimately, we see this is fulfilled in Christ, that God is bringing a people to himself through Christ at the expense of Christ, at the expense of his only son, because he loves us. And then later, when Jesus is resurrected, three days later, he comes back from the dead. He gives us a mission, and it's the same mission. Go out into all of creation and, and tell them the good news. Be an ambassador to the world, showing them God's love and grace. Love God and love your neighbor well. And so this twofold pattern that we've seen over and over and over again is brought home to us in Christ. And is made possible through Christ. That when we are weak, we are strong because it's Christ in us. And we are to love him and to love others like he loves them. And so how does God give us purpose? He gives us his son, Jesus. And through him, he brings us to himself and he sends us out on mission. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for your love. God, we thank you that through Jesus, um, that you have bore us on eagle's wings, that you've brought us to yourself, and that you say, you are my beloved. And God, I, I pray that that would be our heart's motivation to love others this week, to love uh, friends, family members, coworkers, uh, anyone else that we come into contact with, Lord, um, that we uh, would know that we're so loved, uh, that we can love our neighbor well. And so thank you for your son. Thank you for his love for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.